This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 341st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a beloved comedian who is now the dean of late-night television hosts, having anchored a late-night show for almost 27 years. NBC's Late Night with Conan O'Brien from 1993 through 2009, NBC's The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien from 2009 through 2010, and TBS's Conan from 2010 through the present. The funny man with the iconic coiffure, Conan O'Brien. Conan, who really introduced abstract, cartoonish, self-deprecating comedy to late night, has a passionate and fiercely loyal fan base that has come to be known as Team Coco, after a nickname given to him by Tom Hanks, and includes 28.5 million people who follow him on Twitter, more than any other late night host except Jimmy Fallon, and also even his fellow late night hosts, like Stephen Colbert, who recently described him as, quote, the living history of late night, close quote. Over the course of our conversation, the 57-year-old and I discussed his pre-late night career as a writer for NBC's Saturday Night Live from 1988 through 1991, and for Fox's The Simpsons from 1991 through 1993. The challenges and rewards of his long stints hosting Late Night and Conan and his infamous clash with Jay Leno over The Tonight Show that occurred in between, the creative renaissance he has enjoyed since shutting down Conan from October 4th, 2018, and then reintroducing a rebooted version on January 22nd, 2019, down from an hour to a half hour and sans desk band or suit, so that he could devote more time to his podcast, Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, which routinely generates more than 1 million listens per episode, to his Conan Without Borders travel specials, and to other ventures undertaken as part of a comprehensive deal with TBS, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. 
Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Conan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I've been a fan forever, and uh, oh, cool. I guess I want to just begin by asking, how are you and your family holding up during this insanity? I'm doing fine. I haven't asked my family. We don't communicate. Uh, <laughs> they stay on the second floor. I stay on the first floor, so I haven't seen them in three months. Uh, but my, uh, my team of scientists tell me that they're doing very well. <laughs> and my son. They're, they're doing well. You know, it's weird. We have this, uh, I don't know if you've, you're probably somewhat familiar, you may be familiar with this, but there's a whole generation of kid that is built for this. They are built for it. So my daughter is uh, very bright, 16 years old, very adept at doing her work online. Uh, she's also an artist, so she sketches a lot. She's, she's in constant contact with all of her friends. And then my son is loves being on his computer, loves gaming, loves taking school online, loves doing his assignments online, and hangs out with all of his friends online. So I don't think they even know there's a COVID virus. <laughs> They're unaware. Right, it's weird. Right. It's weird. And of course, I'm that generation that, you know, I'm not comfortable in the tech world. And so, and I'm a very needy performer. So <laughs> I'm the one who's having a hard time. <laughs> but still doing it. Um, yeah. Which has, been, which has been great to see. Uh, well, on this podcast, we kind of go back through the big moments of our guests' lives. And I guess the, er, the earliest is certainly where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living. So I hope we can begin there. Okay. All right. I see. It's just like I'm registering to vote. I get it. Uh, <laughs> I'll send along my blood type as well. Yeah. Um, I'll get you everything you need. Uh, I was... Yeah. Uh, Born in Boston and raised in Brookline, Massachusetts. Uh, Brookline, Massachusetts is famous because it's the birthplace of John F. Kennedy. And mm -hmm. also, I think, the bass player from Aerosmith. Uh, <laughs> and then I'm bringing up the rear. So it's it really goes JFK and then uh, bass player from Aerosmith, I think, and then Conan <laughs> in that order. My dad, this is, uh, you know, it fits exactly with the times. My dad is still a microbiologist, an infectious disease scientist, so something like COVID is his specialty. Yeah, is he busy right now? Yeah, I think he accidentally invented it. I think, he's, <laughs> I think he made COVID in the lab, spilled it, and then just uh, now quickly ran. started, yeah, ran, and now is saying like, China, China. Um, right. I wouldn't put it past him. He's a clumsy right. man. So yeah, he's, you know, He's, he's still, he doesn't go into work, but he works from home and he's keeping his eye on it. But I think like everyone else, he's, I'm always saying to my dad, like, gee, pop, what do you know that no one else knows? And he says, no, everybody knows what there is to know. You know, like right. we all, I actually, my dad went to Holy Cross College and was, I think 10 years ahead of another guy named Dr. Fauci. So oh, wow, it all wow, comes wow. together. And uh, my mom, there were six of us, six kids. And she raised us because my dad was always off in the lab, uh, accidentally creating a <laughs> pandemic. And then, um, and then I would say about when I was about twelve years old, she went back to work as a as a lawyer, as a lawyer for a firm in, in Boston. So, 
my dad and my mom are both had very serious jobs and very respected people. And then I threw that all away. <laughs> just a, <laughs> well, now just a life of idiocy. I don't know why. <laughs> why did they go with the name Conan? That's sort of a bit unusual, isn't it? You know, it's funny. My my oldest brother, who was first, was called Neil. It's pretty normal. My second brother's Luke. And when I was born, I don't know what it was. I was the only kid in my family to have bright orange hair. And so I came out with this like orangutan hair. And <laughs> even as a newborn, I had a full pompadour. Uh, and I came out, I think they looked at me and thought, okay, he's different. And my dad said he needs to have a special name or a different name. And so they didn't name me right away. And my dad went off and researched names in the library and he found Conan. Now he did not know that there was a comic book called Conan the Barbarian. He didn't know anything about that. He right. just found this name and thought it was really cool. And it had some ancient Gaelic roots. So he named me Conan. My mom and dad named me Conan. And it was kind of a cool name that no one knew what it meant for about eight years, 10 years. And then the Conan comic books became popular. Yep. And then the movie came out. And so there was just a solid 15 years of... People in Boston going, what are you, a barbarian or something? <laughs> hey, fuck you, man. And then hitting me really yeah. hard. Uh, I think they would have hit me regardless of my name. Uh, anyway, But I once yeah. looked at, yeah, I looked it up once because I thought, oh, maybe it's Gaelic for like bold warrior or, you know, lightning speed. And it said something like it's Gaelic for wide face. <laughs> it's like, oh. Okay, I'll well, just that, keep that to myself. That's a little disappointing. So growing up in what I understand was a, a pretty observant Irish Catholic family and mm -hmm. with all of the siblings who you mentioned, how do you think that shaped you as a person, shaped your sense of humor? I would imagine it had some impact. Yeah, it, it definitely did. Uh, I think this is after years of thinking about it in therapy and talking to other comedians. What I, My theory is that if you are in an Irish Catholic home, it's not appropriate to tell people directly how you're feeling. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't mm -hmm. say to you, hey, um, you know, when I, when I came over to your house and you didn't offer me anything to eat, that kind of, I don't know, it felt a little rude. You don't, you don't say any, or you and I have this, had this altercation and I think we should talk about it. You don't say anything. If someone does something that bothers you, you don't ever mention it to them. Mm -hmm. What you do is you mention it to everybody else <laughs> and, and you never say it to them. Now, what, th there's another option, which is you let them know you're disappointed and that you're irritated or annoyed or angry. You let them know in a, quote, funny way. <laughs> that makes everybody laugh, including the person you're saying it to. Right, and then right. about half an hour later, they realize that you put a <laughs> knife between their ribs. But at the time, they didn't know it. And I always think of it as there was always this uh, legend of the vibrating palm 
I think in uh, in martial arts where you could specialists could vibrate their palm and then strike someone in the chest and the person wouldn't <laughs> feel anything and then two hours later they'd die of a heart attack. Right, that was right. something we all heard about when we and there was a rumor that that's what Bruce Lee died of. Someone hit him with the vibrating palm and then he was fine and then later died. That is, I think, partially the genesis of some of comedy, at mm. least in my case, is. How do I communicate with this person honestly to their face, but it's done in this high wire act kind of way. It's very precise. They don't feel it, but then they feel it later. And if they do get upset, you can say, oh, it's just, everyone was laughing. I was just having fun. <laughs> so I think that's where you're like honing and attenuating and finessing this crazily backwards, passive aggressive way of communicating with people. <laughs> and then it turns out that, hey, wait a minute, people laugh when I do this. Mm -hmm. Hey, mm -hmm. someone's handing me a check. This could be a way of earning a living. So I, I think that's kind of what it was. Well, yeah, I was going to kind of head in that direction about when it first occurred to you that this was something you could actually professionally do something with. But actually, before you know going down that road any further, I want to just ask you, in terms of your own consumption of comedy and particularly late night comedy, what was, what was there? Well, of course, when I was a kid, you know, people, they talk about their childhood. I think what they're really talking about is when did they really join the world? Cause it takes a while to download. It takes a bunch of years where you're, you're clueless. You're not really watching TV or especially not watching late night TV. Uh, so I really sort of become aware in the early seventies and that's all Johnny Carson is, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously, I was exposed to comedy mostly through old movies that were shown on Channel 56, Channel 38. This will sound crazy to anyone listening now, but there used to be UHF channels, and they would show old movies all the time. And I would watch the Marx Brothers, and I would watch W.C. Fields, and I'd watch the Three Stooges. And it just seemed really funny to me. And because we had a black and white television, it wasn't strange that it was in black and white. So... I was exposed to a lot of great comedy, Laurel and Hardy, that just they showed on TV, and it was what was mm -hmm. on, and there's only three, three or four channels. There's uh, ABC, CBS, NBC, then Channel 56, Channel 38, that's it. Mm. So mm. I listened to that, I, I watched those people, and you know, I Love Lucy, whatever, but then at night, I always watched What's Making My Dad Laugh, because I think mm -hmm. that's what you do is, I think boys tend to look at their dad and say, what's, what's making dad laugh? And my dad had a, has a really good sense of humor and loved Johnny Carson. And he said that his love of late night TV really began with the beginning of late night TV because my dad, mm -hmm. if you think about it, my dad's a, a resident. So he gets out of medical school and he did a little bit of time in the, uh, I think in the army in Texas but he's, uh, he's working in medicine, and then he's really in the 50s, in the early 50s, he has to stay up all night because that's what residents do. He had to stay up mm -hmm. all night, sometimes two nights in a row, and there was a little room with a TV, and so he would watch this guy, Steve Allen, who he thought was fantastic, and he watched him for the couple of years that he was doing The Tonight Show. Then he watched Jack Parr and loved Jack Parr, and then Carson came along, and so... I'm really coming on, I'm, I'm coming of age about 10 years into Johnny Carson's run and noticing that my dad gets to stay up late and I hear him <laughs> laughing. 
And then my dad starts letting us watch on certain occasions. And then my dad would always do the same thing, which is, you know, I'm just going to watch the monologue. And then, okay, I just want to see after the first commercial, because maybe he'll do Karnak, you know, and then whether he did Karnak or not, he'd say, okay, I I just want to see who the guest is. I want to see a little bit of the guest. And my dad would always end up staying up way too late. So that was my introduction as a kid. And then right around the time I'm, I was a senior in high school and I was late I had, it was second semester, I think, or maybe it was first semester, I can't remember, but I had, I got to sleep in a little bit because it's like senior year and I didn't have a class first thing in the morning. So I slept in a little bit, but then I'm running late and I could walk to my high school. So I'm tearing out the front door and my sister Kate shouted, wait, wait, come back. And I came back and I said, what? And she said, there's something on TV. You got to check this out. And it was David Letterman doing when he had his, his morning show. show. It was his morning yeah, show. Yeah. And I, I wrote a piece about this for Entertainment Weekly when Dave left CBS, you know, whatever it was, five years ago. And, and I said, mm-hmm. and it was called Suddenly Everything Was Wrong because nothing about it was anything like what I had seen before. And, right. and I described how viscerally different it was and what an impression that made on me. So then I was a Dave, you know, acolyte uh, for yeah. those, 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 those years. So that was my introduction to late night. And sure. of course, it's hugely different now because there used to be one, sometimes then there was like two late night shows or three. Even when I got started, there weren't that many. Mm-hmm. And now it's just... I think if, if you are registered to vote, you get a late night show. <laughs> uh, but I mean that, and it, like there's, it, there's a lot of them. And what's great, and actually the positive side of it, is that everyone interprets, a lot of the people who interpret these shows their own way and put their own spin on it. So that's nice. It's just to see the variety, the incredible variety of the different shows. But it is stunning to try and explain to people, there used to be one. It used to be like Johnny Carson had a monopoly for, you know, uh, for a long time, for like two decades, he had a monopoly. So uh, and that's hard to explain to anybody that there used to be one place to shop for your late night comedy. (laughs) Well, you've said that you had pretty serious anxiety as a kid, which is not Mm -hmm. uncommon. But I wondered if it sounds like you were pressure putting pressure on yourself to do or to achieve various things. And you certainly did achieve a lot. You wound up at Harvard and Mm -hmm. not only there, but doing pretty interesting stuff with your thesis and stuff that I've read about. I I think you were a history major, if I remember. Yeah, history and literature major, yeah. Yeah, but it sounds like that was where, for the first time, you really kind of dived into comedy, you know, fully. And I wonder if you can just talk about the role that the Lampoon played in your life there and, uh, you know, I just want to tell our listeners, you, I believe, submitted for the first time for it as a freshman, present in consecutive years. I think your sophomore and junior year or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there hadn't been a consecutive president since Robert Benchley in the in the early teens, I believe, or 1912. Mm-hmm. And then actually, if, if, if maybe you can run with this as well, I believe you even got arrested while you were on the Lampoon staff. So just well, uh, they tried to arrest. I was uh, they that's a whole <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get to the arrest. <laughs> 
I feel like I have to. I feel like I, feel like I have to bring a lawyer in now. Wait a minute. I just. I'm going to cover the microphone like they do at Senate hearings and uh, talk to a lawyer for 20 minutes. Uh, yeah. Well, I'll take. You brought up many things, so I'll take them in order. Uh, I had been funny with my friends, which I think is the experience of a lot of professional comedians. Is you always start out well. It's first you start out being funny at the at the dinner table, and you make your siblings laugh and your parents laugh. And I got pretty good at that. Then I did it with my friends. I wasn't the class clown. I was kind of serious and shy in school. I was also, I had a lot of anxiety about school. I didn't like school, which surprises people because they say, well, wait a minute, you went to Harvard, so you must've been a good student. Mm-hmm. I worked really hard. I think one of my ways of coping with my anxiety was I'm not necessarily proud of this, but I'll memorize everything in the textbook. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I'll memorize a lot of stuff. I'll memorize everything I need to know. Uh, So I think I had a lot of coping mechanisms that weren't necessarily pleasant for me, but that's how I coped. And then I did get accepted to this really good college and I went there. And the amazing thing about the Lampoon was I hadn't been thinking about the Lampoon when I went to Harvard. But I've got there and it's the classic thing where my, one of my roommates said, I'm going to go check out the Lampoon. And I was like, <laughs> huh, Lampoon, the comedy thing? And they're like, yeah. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll tag along. And I tagged along and he wasn't interested, but I was like, this is interesting. Now, keep in mind when you're, the people running the Lampoon are 21, but when you're 18, a 21 or a 22 year old seems like a 50 year old war vet. Like they (laughs) just seem so much, there's that chasm of four years experience. So I saw adults who were taking comedy seriously and they had a building and they were putting out a magazine and they had just put out a parody of uh, People magazine with Brooke Shields on the cover. And it's like they had clout. And I just immediately was fascinated. Comedy was suddenly something that adults, or to me, adults, Mm -hmm. took seriously. And it was a real, uh, some of these people were leaving school and getting jobs, you know, working for like a David Letterman. And I just thought, this is, this is what? Wait a minute, you can do this? So I threw myself into the lampoon and that's what I did for a bunch of years and uh, in college and ran it and literally slept there, slept on that couch Mm -hmm. uh, in the president's office half the time. First place I'd go in the morning, last place I'd leave at night. I, it was just everything to me. And what you do sometimes at the Lampoon is you play what are considered pranks. We played a prank on the, our rival was the, the Crimson. The Crimson's the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And it's very serious. <laughs> and everyone who works at the Crimson goes on to work for the New York Times or the Washington Post. And they, they, they go on to, you know, win Pulitzer Prizes and be very distinguished. And so, and most of the people in the Lampoon end up dying of alcoholism uh, <laughs> uh, or, or writing for Mr. Belvedere. So I just thought, well, there's a natural animosity there between the two. And so they would sometimes steal something from us. So one night, one day we just decided to steal, let's break in and steal their whole edition for that day. <laughs> so we broke in early, we took all the papers and we thought that they'd be like, ha ha, okay, 
give us the papers back and we'd say, we don't have them. And then say, okay, you can, if you give us the newspapers back, then we'll give you back the, the, the president's chair that we took a year ago. And we'd be like, okay. But instead (laughs) the crimson immediately went nuclear. So, uh, they, they called not the Harvard police, but the Cambridge police who were like, no screwing around police. <laughs> and they pulled up and they're like, Mr. O'Brien. And I'm like, oh uh, yeah. Cause I didn't hit puberty, uh, <laughs> till I think 52. <laughs> I was 52 years old it was, and I had it medically induced, but I, they're like, you Conan O'Brien, are you Conan O'Brien? I went, that's right. And they went, do you have the newspapers? Um, no, I don't. Okay. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can will be used against you. And they start to put handcuffs on me. I think they got handcuffs on one wrist. And I went, <laughs> I think I know where the papers are. <laughs> <laughs> so I cracked right away. Can we, uh, I guess I, I have to prompt you for the kicker, though. Who actually called the police? Well, you know, it's <laughs> a lot of water under the bridge. And so I don't like to hang on to old animosities. But uh, the guy who was uh, running the Crimson at the time was a guy named uh, Jeff Zucker, and he's the one that called the police. And then uh, he went on to run NBC and he and I ended up having sort of an epic uh, battle uh, regarding The Tonight Show. But that's, you know, <laughs> Neither it, yeah. there. it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's like if it really is kind of akin to if, you know, General Lee and General Grant had uh, <laughs> been playing pranks on each other at, at West Point and then later on, <laughs> you know, got involved in this epic Civil War. But yes. um, but yeah, life is short and we move on. And yes. I learned an invaluable lesson, which is I, I learned that I was a moral coward and I will crack the minute <laughs> the police start to arrest me. Well, so you uh, you graduate in 85 and yep. someone who I think you were already writing with maybe at the Lampoon was Greg Daniels, who people now know from among other things, adapting The Office for American TV, I think, yeah. uh, is where you- The Office, um, uh, Parks and Recreation, King of the Hill. He tends to only have success. Uh, yes. And I find that I'm very bitter about that. I think Greg's had, way, <laughs> Greg's had way too much success. I think he should share more of that with other people. But every time well, he does something- it, um, it, it sounds like you and he shared a lot of things for those first few years out of school when you wind up- uh, heading, I believe, first to New York and then maybe to L.A. with him? Yeah, we went to, we decided to try and make a go of it. Late senior year, we said, let's try and work together and see if we can get a job in show business together. Wouldn't that be cool? And um, so we worked just briefly in New York together writing, and we ended up writing a packet for a show called Not Necessarily the News. Now, this is back when HBO was still fairly novel, Mm-hmm. 1985. And it was, you know, we got the job. We we wrote a packet that I think to this day, I think is a pretty good packet. And I tell young people that there are many more opportunities today than there were then. A lot of shows. And if you are really like a show, watch that show and really, you know, uh, watch that show and then write in that show style, write a spec script. So we wrote and really try and write something that if someone saw it, and I think to this day when we hire writers for our show, the thing that impresses me most is when I see a packet and it's got a piece in it and I think, wait a minute, this could go, we could actually use this. This mm-hmm. would be great if we could use it right now. That really makes you want to hire that person. 
Like if you look at it and they write a sketch or even in especially a repeating bit, and you think, wait a minute, I would love to have, who is this? Who mm-hmm. is he? Who is she? You, you really want them. So we wrote some things that I think in the packet that we submitted that ended up getting on the show once we were on. They, they gave us a tryout. We flew out. We spent, we were both very frugal. We bought the worst car in the world, which was a 1973 Isuzu Opal, which I looked <laughs> it up later on. I think uh, the Isuzu company decided it wasn't technically a car and gave up on it. Uh, it is, was hideous and we bought it at the airport and oh, drove God. this piece of crap for years. And then we had, a de- we had a desk at work, like a partner's desk where I faced him and he faced me. We shared this car. We shared a small apartment. We had no furniture, so we subscribed to the LA Times, and then we would tie up the bundles with twine and use those to make seats, because we, <laughs> we, we kept thinking, we're gonna get fired, we may have to go back to New York, so let's be really right. frugal. Uh, and it ended up being, Greg, when I got married, Greg read a toast at the dinner the night before, and the toast was brilliant, because he just read from his, he found his diary, from <laughs> the fall of 1985. And it literally had things in it like Conan and I today decided let's not spend any money in just in case we get fired. So we walked through Westwood. We stopped and we looked in a window. There was a large chocolate chip cookie in the window. Conan said, I'd really like to have that cookie. It'd be really nice to eat that cookie right now. And then I reminded him, Conan, we said we wouldn't buy anything like a cookie today. And Conan said, you're right, Greg. And we walked away. I hope someday Conan gets to have that cookie. Like, what, what are we? We're like these kids in the depression. We were making union scale and we weren't, you know what I mean? We could have, yeah. I could have bought that cookie. <laughs> I could have bought a lot of cookies. And well, so it was hilarious. It was just ridiculous. Well, absolutely. Uh, it seems like another thing that was going on in L.A. I don't know what prompted you to begin doing this, but you started taking classes with the Groundlings. And Well, it's interesting. What's bringing it all full circle I'm kind of sentimental about, which is we're talking right now on this, uh, you know, virtually or through the through the Ethernet, whatever you kids want to call it. Um, <laughs> but we're we're I am right now at the Largo and mm-hmm. because we're. We're trying to, uh, in a COVID, uh, in, in, a, in a responsibly, medically responsible way, see if we can move into a space that we can use to make comedy, but socially distance, have everyone tested, use literally just a couple of people from the crew just to keep everybody on the show paid. And also we thought to keep this theater going. The Largo mm-hmm. is one of the great comedy venues, live comedy venues in Los Angeles. And I've performed here a million times. And any given night you can see Adam Sandler here, or Tig Notaro, or Bill Burr, or Sarah Silverman. I mean, Will Ferrell, like, it's just a magical place. So I bring it up because I'm here right now sitting at a table on the stage, and this is where I got my start. In 1985, I knew I wanted to perform. I didn't want to do stand-up, I wanted to do improv. I remember that people, some people at the time not knowing what improv was, Mm-hmm. Uh, they only knew it from Second City. And here I am in L.A. I applied to classes at the Groundlings and they said, well, there aren't any classes starting right now. 
And I said, well, I really need to start right now, September 1985. And they said, okay, there's a woman named Cynthia Segetti and she's teaching a class at this li- in this little tiny room at what is now Largo. It's called the Coronet, Largo at the Coronet. And so I went there and you, le- you would walk in the door and you would put cash in a jar, whatever it was, 20 bucks. So I couldn't get a cookie, but I spent my cookie money <laughs> to take improv. And this woman would teach the basics of improv. And she was a very good teacher, Cynthia Segetti. And the first person who I noticed on stage is this young woman who had also just graduated from college. She graduated from Vassar. And she's really funny, attractive person who is immediately just great. I'm just looking at her saying, she's really good. Uh, And she's making really smart choices, not cliched choices. She's making all these interesting, smart, informed choices. And so we talk, we both find, we find out that we're both just out of school, both uh, just back from the East Coast. I'm from there, but she was uh, from from this area. And then it's Lisa Kudrow. And we become really (laughs) close friends. And Mm -hmm. I told her, hey, we're friends. You should someday do a show called Friends. (laughs) <laughs> um, and she said, wait, what do you mean? And I said, trust me. And I explained the whole thing. And I said, "There's, you should get, this should be the cast. And I, I knew that Jennifer Aniston uh, would one day be in it. I don't know why I don't get credit for any of that. I came up with well, the theme song. Uh, so anyway, I basically, you're welcome. Friends was mine. Well, that was for you the beginning of, of performing, I guess, really in front of yeah. others as opposed to writing. And yet- what ultimately led you back to the East Coast to SNL, which must have felt like at the time a, a huge opportunity. Oh, my God. Was like yeah. The, j- yeah. Just writing, though, right? You weren't coming there to be a performer. No, not going there to perform at all. I mean, always in the back of my mind, I thought I, I love being in front of people. But what's interesting is that I never thought about being a performer on Saturday Night Live. I got to do some things here and there, but it was such a different kind of performing. You know, when I got to Saturday Night Live, I never once looked at Dana Carvey or Mike Myers and said, how come them and not me? Like <laughs> there's there. And, you know, same thing with John Lovitz or, you know, I would look at these people and I would say like, or Phil Hartman, these people could become other people and they had mm-hmm. tons of characters. And I always thought, I know how I'm funny. I'm funny as myself and as an extent, maybe a, a slight extension of myself, but, a I never looked at them uh, with anything but admiration. And I just thought, I don't know what it is I do, but that's what they do. And I didn't, I didn't think that there was, um, you know, I think Lauren started to, and maybe Jim Downey started to think there's something about Conan that's interesting, but what is it? You know, he's got a look, he's got a certain, I could make the other writers laugh. That was always the thing mm-hmm. I could do at Sound Out Live or The Simpsons. I was the guy who could get up. I always say the Maury Amsterdam <laughs> from the Dick Van Dyke show. I was that guy. I was the guy mm-hmm. who was, and and that was my role. And there was also where I think you first began collaborating with Robert Smigel, who would yep, then yep. be your head writer at uh, when you went to Late Night and on yep. and on. But um, I guess one question that I have to ask, you had some some great stuff that you did while you were at SNL. Some of the sketches, the Tom Hanks, John Lovitz thing, and just right, a number right. of them I, I went back to. Why, though, after three and a half years, you're not even 30, who walks away from Saturday Night Live? 
Well, I walked away because I think I was in a not a great place in my life. Relationship had not worked out. And I remembered feeling burnt out and needing a change and probably somewhat depressed. Uh, and I couldn't do it. And I left Saturday Night Live without having another job, which to this day feels like, what was that? That's stupid. But fortunately, I've, I've been a poster child for good luck, uh, crazy <laughs> good luck. I, there was an opening at The Simpsons around the time, and they're looking, and then I think The Simpsons heard, I think I had a good reputation, and some of the guys at The Simpsons said, like, well, we know Conan, you know. Um, and so they just reached out and said, would this be something that you might be interested in doing? And the timing was just so fortuitous. This was I, just days after you left SNL, right? Very soon yeah, after. Yeah, I would say maybe a week or two weeks after I left SNL. I heard that there was a possibility. So I honestly didn't know if I could write in that style because I had only written sketches. At the time, mm -hmm. I had been in show business professionally since 85, and now it's 88. Well, okay, so it's three years, but I had only exclusively... No, that's not it. Now it's... Uh, I'm sorry, it's later than that. 88 when I went to SNL, so now it's... 91. Um, 91. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I need you, by the way, because you seem to know my life better than I what's my What's my name again? <laughs> when I start to go, when I start to go senile, I'm going to need you. Uh, I'm here. What's my bank? What's my PIN number again? Uh, so I went to um, The Simpsons, but if you think about it, up to that point, it's six years, and I'd only written sketch in short form. And suddenly they're saying, well, you need to tell a story over half an hour. Mm -hmm. And I had never done that before, and I wasn't sure I could do it. And I was extremely anxious and nervous about it. And it's an it was a very intimidating writer's room because it was, you know, it was the original Simpsons writing room. Mm -hmm. It was the, the group that had created the show and launched it and been there for that whole thing. And so I'm the first, I think I was like the first one to come on to that. And I was like, oh my God, am I going to fit in? Is this going to work out? But pretty quickly I started to realize, oh, it's a cartoon and I have a very cartoonish sense of humor. And all my comedy has always been somewhat visual and cartoony. And I was very influenced by Warner Brothers cartoons and that kind of silliness. And so I quickly realized, oh, this is a good spot for me. And so mm -hmm. I did that for well, a while. I, I want to, yeah, you're, it looks like you're there from 91 to 93. And people who, you know, go back and watch episodes out of order and whatever, they might get a kick out of knowing that Marge versus the monorail and some of these, which was the play on the Music Man and so many yeah. of these other uh, really memorable, funny episodes you were responsible for. I happened to get a, a big kick out of what I read happened, like, basically right after you walked into The Simpsons for the first time. Can you share your first day your first hour well, what wait, happened do, there do you are you thinking of something specific because i i don't know because yeah. th there's lore and then there's things that are true uh i'm oh, I'm talking oh, about oh i know what you're talking about <laughs> the omen right the yes, bad omen exactly exactly uh, i get i'll never forget al gene greets me and he says hey thanks a lot for it's glad you got here do you have a place to stay and i said yeah no I've, i got a place to stay for now and i'll get an apartment thinking if this works out, I'll get an apartment, but I'm always, <laughs> you know, planning for things to not go well. And 
he shows me uh, it's a bungalow. It's like a two-story bungalow on the Fox lot where the Simpsons still are to this day. And it looks like it was built very hastily in the 1930s and not very well. <laughs> it looks like a seedy motel. That's where they write The Simpsons. And he, he takes me upstairs and he shows me this little office that was just vacated by a writer that's empty. And he says, this will be your room. And I said, okay. And so I set, I had nothing. I think I had like a backpack with like a pad and a pen in it. I didn't have a computer or anything. I just set that stuff down on the desk in this empty, tiny office that was really small. And there's a window that looks outside into the courtyard. And I leave. I said, is there coffee here? And he went, oh, yeah, there's coffee in the main writer's room. So I go and I get coffee in the main writer's room. And I'm, while I'm in there, I hear a smashing sound. <laughs> and I come out with my coffee and I walk back to the office that I've just been shown. <laughs> and a large bird... I can see it to this day. A large bird had smashed into the window, had been sailing through the courtyard, smashed into my window. There's like 30 <laughs> windows to pick from. Seconds after I had taken possession of this office, crashed through the window, hit the far wall and broken its neck and died in the middle of the room. And so there's a dead, broken-necked black bird <laughs> with its wings splayed out and glass everywhere. And I'm a George Meyer, I leaned in and he was like, trippy, man, that's really trippy. What does it mean, man? I'm like, oh my God, I think it, I think this means the mafia is going to kill me. It's like a death threat. Yeah, that so happened, funny. yeah. Well, so that was day one. The end of your time at Simpsons came about though because of some shifts in late night that I just wanna quickly remind listeners about. It's 1993. Johnny Carson retires. Jay Leno gets his job. David Letterman leaves for CBS. And now the 1235 job at NBC that Dave had had is open. Mm -hmm. You were approached about it by Lauren, who I guess was now being tasked with overseeing the kind of the show there. But my understanding is you removed your name from consideration because initially he was just looking at looking for a producer. So how did it then come around? Well, what happened was he initially came and said, you have to back it up a bit. Why is Lauren, at the time, Lauren's now produ produces half of Late Night, but at the time he yeah. hadn't produced, other than Saturday Night Live, he wasn't producing any other Late Night show uh, on NBC. But Dave, they didn't, I guess NBC didn't think Dave was going to leave. This is my understanding. And, and, and I really believe this. And, and Bill Carter wrote a book about all of this, mm -hmm. uh, The Late Shift, which, which really describes it all in detail and is very accurate, I think. But basically, NBC didn't think Dave was gonna leave. They just thought, Jay will do The Tonight Show and Dave will do The 1235 Show and that's it. But Dave was like, no, screw this. And he left to CBS to do a competing show. Mm -hmm. And NBC suddenly had no show at 1135 and they needed someone quickly. So they, they wanted to keep the affiliates, I guess, happy. So they said, don't worry, Lauren Michaels is going to take care of it. And everyone calmed down for a bit. And then I guess <laughs> Lauren thought of me as a p possible, the guy who could be the head writer producer of it. Then he approached me about that. And I was thinking, but I, who's the host? I don't know who the host is. And no one knew. And I had a really just 
again, I have problems with, you know, issues with anxiety. I remember getting really f this like feeling of like, no, this isn't right. This isn't right. This isn't right. So I finally told Lauren, you know, I don't think this is right for me. So I left the enterprise, you know, the, this, the plan to make a new late night show. And I remember at the time thinking there was a rumor that it was going to be Gary Shandling. And I thought that makes sense. It'll be Gary Shandling. So I go and I go to back to, uh, I hadn't left, but I continue working at The Simpsons, and I think a couple of weeks go by, and then I get another call from Lauren, which is what I, you know, I, I, I later learned that I don't think Gary Shanling seriously wanted to do it. So they were casting around and, you know, watching people and looking at people, and they didn't know, and he said, would you audition for it? And I said, I'll never forget, I thought, remembered calling Robert Smigel and Robert Smigel said, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, you've done some improv, but replacing David Letterman, I went, I know, yeah, it's crazy. And I remembered in the background, Robert's wife, Michelle said something and it sounded like the, one of the, the parents or teachers on Charlie Brown, like, womp, 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 womp. I couldn't hear what she said. And Robert went, well, that's a good point. And I said, what did she say? What did she say? And she said, what do you have to lose? Mm-hmm. And I had this feeling of, and the other person who I, I've told her this subsequently many times, and I told her on my podcast not long ago, Lisa Kudrow was adamant. She was like, you're the person who could do this. And I, she had like a religious conviction that I could do it. She had more conviction I could do it that I, than I did. Mm. But she was very adamant. And then I had an audition where they cleared out the Tonight Show and brought in a different crowd and they brought me out and I had written a monologue and then they sprung two people on me to interview Mimi Rogers and Jason Alexander and I did. And there's clips of it. It's ridiculous. I'm wearing a... <laughs> Lisa Kudrow took me to... Um, there's a store called Fred Siegel. Mm -hmm. And Lisa and I are still like really young. We don't know anything. She takes me over to Fred Siegel and she says, oh, this jacket will be good. Now, if you look at my complexion, I've subsequently learned the last thing you should, a guy like me should wear is a light suit. <laughs> Lisa was like, oh, get this. It looks good. It was a baggy. It's like the 80s had just ended. It's a really baggy <laughs> uh, white linen jacket that wrinkles easily. And I put it on and because I didn't own a jacket. And then I drove to this audition in my Ford Taurus <laughs> and parked it outside and I go in and I walk out and I do this thing. And I remember it being really having fun. I think it just seems so ridiculous to me. When I look at it now, you can, I think you can see it on YouTube because we've put it on the show a bunch of times as a joke, but I'm hunched over. My posture's terrible. I got this big droopy hair. I'm wearing a jacket that makes me look like I have leukemia. Uh, oh, I just God. look so, and I just look so sickly. I don't, my makeup isn't right. Nothing's right except that I was completely myself. Mm -hmm. uh, and that I guess had some appeal. And then I think the people at NBC started to realize, well, if Shanling doesn't want to do it, let's take a chance on a new generation person. And I think I also, I started to say, hey, I could bring in Robert Smigel. He could be the head writer. And we had a lot of ideas. We had a lot of, I'll say yeah. this for us. We had a lot of conviction. Mm -hmm. uh, Robert and I, both had a lot of conviction about what a late night show should be and how it could be different. How we had a whole theory, which I still to this day think is right, which is if Carson is the late night show 
and then Letterman is the anti-show, we would be, what comes next? Well, something kind of postmodern, something sort of more like Pee Wee's Playhouse where Mm -hmm. it's not about irony and detachment. If a sketch calls for me to break down crying or fall in love with a puppet, I will do that. Uh, (laughs) There'll be... There'll be claymation, there'll be alternate realities. And so what's really nice now is at the time, of course, we, we came out with the show and there was, I think, I think there was a lot of brilliant writing. I wasn't up to snuff for a while. And so- Well, can we I t- interrupt you for one second? Yeah. Just because I want to, to that point, you're 30 years old when you start. You were hired on, it's April 26, 93. You've got to be on the air by September- 13th 93 you didn't have that much of a oh uh, yeah time to think of it now i've been i've been jealous ever since because people will i'll hear that someone's getting a late night show and they've got a year to pull it together (laughs) and i had no experience and i'm replacing the hottest late night show in the world which is late night with david letterman (laughs) iconic and a performer who's like at the peak of his he's been doing it for 11 years and you look at it now and it just seems it's insanity, but. Well, it was setting, it was, it was setting you up for, I mean, you you had gone from complete anonymity to being a thrust into the limelight very quickly and uh, having to adjust in very short amount of time. I want to, I want to just read, you know, you took some flack in those early reviews and I'm going to, there's a, I'm not doing this to be sadistic because there's a, there's a up uplifting uh, end to this, but just to read one thing, October 19th, 93, Tom Shales in Los Angeles Times, quote, having a TV talk show is still a privilege and not a right. And O'Brien does not deserve the privilege. He is very smart. He is a very smart, clever comedy writer, well-liked in the industry, author of last week's Funny Simpsons episode, but out of his league and in over his head with this hosting business. He's out of his head if he thinks the show is working, close quote. But then within three years, he's writing, quote, Conan O'Brien, 33-year-old host of NBC's Late Night, has gone through one of the most amazing transformations in television history. O'Brien, after a rocky start, has become the new Dave. O'Brien survived a merciless drubbing when his show premiered in September 1993. Some critics, present company included, were excessively mean, close quote. So did you deserve the, the bad reviews at the beginning? And then what turned around with the show that you kind of apparently grew into it? Well, you know, I never thought they're wrong because I thought... You know, Tom Schell's, you know, he's a brilliant critic and he's, what I tried to explain to people is that if I wasn't me, follow me on this, if I wasn't me, I would hate me. Meaning <laughs> I really loved Dave's show. And then if I was there and a 30 year old with little to no experience as a performer shows up and he seems awkward and his voice is strangely pitched uh, and everything looked completely different, I would not be kind. And I would think this is, pardon my French, a fuck up. This is, this is wrong. <laughs> so I've always tried to see both sides of it. I really loved a lot of the comedy that we did. And I also have gone back and looked at some of the really good moments, but I think from those, from those early shows, but it took us a while to find our feet. And Americans are rightfully tough. <laughs> like we, we want everything to be great right now. And what I, was initial, what I was more or less saying is, well, give me a chance. It'll take some time, but we'll get there. <laughs> no, it, you know, we, and so I think two things happened. I think I had to learn 
my job, and the audience had to learn my rhythm. And so, and then we meet in the middle. And, and mm-hmm. that's how I've come to make peace with it, which is, you know, and, and in a really good way, I've come to believe that, and this might be the Catholic in me, but those really hard times early on, and I was on, you know, NBC more or less decided to put me on three-month contracts, even if they were three months, they may have been less than that. I don't know. And everyone knew it and there was blood in the water and it was agonizing. And I was, a day didn't go by when I wasn't either, either told by someone on the street in New York or read that I was bad at my job. That was rough. And, I, and I bet. I've had people say to me since, you must have a thick skin. And that just, my wife laughs every time she hears that. She goes like, he's got the thinnest skin of anybody. <laughs> So put on top of that, no, I don't have a thick skin. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I have an incre- I have no skin. Uh, <laughs> it's why I'm so pale. You can see, you know, I, you, I'm like, uh, you can see my circulatory system. And yeah. so that was very, very, very intensely painful. And yeah. it comes back to me sometimes. I'll, I'll still have nightmares about that time. But what sustained me was that every day we was the volume. We had to do so many shows. I had to fill so much television that I went from having no experience to being one of the most experienced yeah. <laughs> late night people within, I mean, all it takes is about a year. It really is like being in battle. You become hardened pretty quickly. So I think by our third year, we had really found our rhythm. And what's fascinating now is the number of people I encounter who are who I really admire, this is not because of what they say about me, but because they're just such terrific comedians. I mean, and they're such powerful voices in comedy right now who are in their 20s or 30s, and they'll say, oh yeah, mostly 30s, you know, I watched that show that first year and I really loved it. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) They're like, no, kids really liked it because it was so different and we got what you were doing. And I was like, why didn't you say anything? And they're like, I was 11. How is John Mulaney supposed to get to me and tell me as an 11-year-old, it's all going to be fine? And who would listen to an 11-year-old John Mulaney? So. <laughs> well, so that was, uh, that was one tough period. And you then had a, a, a lot of years there from 93 to 2009 of, yeah. of great, great stuff. And, you know, people can go back and find all the, all the you know, highlights online. But Without harping on it, I've just got to talk about the the transitionary period here, where yeah. at the other bookend you get you you it's in 2004. You're told five years from now you get to do the Tonight Show, right. which had been the dream. You wait that out rather than going a competitor. You go on on February 20th, 2009, moving across the country, all of that. And I guess I just wonder, you know, there were all these arguments about why things were not necessarily working there and right, people said right. things about the ratings, but that could have had to do with a lead. And my question to you is, when did you first realize that this was going off track a little bit there uh, in terms of the relationship with the network and the, and the future of that show there? And then what was the final straw? Well, to me, it w- you know, before we took over the Tonight Show, this very strange thing happened where they said, we're taking... <laughs> I think that's when we knew. I knew things were going off the rails uh, and that we were in a, a weird position before we even took over The Tonight Show because 
before we did, they announced that Jay Leno would move, would take, would move to 10 o'clock and do an hour there every night. Essentially the tonight show with Jay Leno would move to 10 o'clock from 10 to 11 then there'd be local news from 11 to 11.30, and then The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien would start. And I remember thinking, and this is before we've done anything. We haven't even moved out yet. <laughs> We're still making late-night shows. And I think that's when I knew, and I think it's fair to say that that's when I thought, what? And I wasn't the only <laughs> one to think that. Uh, right. It was, we're going to give someone, we'll be a restaurant that serves you an ice cream sundae, and then... For dessert, you get an ice cream sundae. <laughs> it just felt like, uh, you know, we're going to serve you 64 ounces of Pepsi. And then once you're done with that, we'll take that bottle away. And then it's time for your 64 ounces of Coke. It just was like, uh, I'm Coke in this scenario, by the way. Uh, right. <laughs> just to be clear. Yeah. Yeah. Pepsi has a weird aftertaste. But, um, but anyway, so that's the thing that sometimes people can forget, which is, this thing went off the rails long before <laughs> before we got to take over because we weren't even sure what are we taking over then. And I think ultimately, to be fair to everybody, NBC just couldn't make up their mind. They wanted to keep hedging their bets. And I think a lot of the people involved would admit that now, although some are no longer with us. But they would say, yeah, you, just decide. Just say, you know what? We want Jay to stay. So Conan you should go someplace else. Or Conan, we think it's time for you to do it and try and get a younger demo. And, you know, Jay, we think it's time for you to go. And if Jay wants to go someplace else, there's nothing we can do about that. You got to decide. And they mm -hmm. couldn't decide. So they did this crazy, let's have it both ways. You know what I mean? I'll marry mm -hmm. you, but I'll also still keep seeing you. You're like... <laughs> So you're divorcing that person? No, I'm still married to that person. Oh, okay. So what am I? You're my wife. But wait, who's that? That's my wife. It just doesn't work. Right. And then I knew it had really gone off the rails, I think, when the 10 o'clock thing with Jade imploded. They said, okay, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> we're going to still keep both of you, but we're going to move him to... to 11.30 and 5, and we're going to put you on at 12.05, but still call it The Tonight Show, even though technically now it's tomorrow. Yeah. And that's when I said, <laughs> you guys can't seem to do this, so let me yeah. do it for you. And so I've never, I've never regretted that. I, I had no, it was very clear to me then. It's very clear to me now. No one was leading anything. No one was making the decisions that had to be made. So I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I did it in a way that uh, I'm very stand behind and proud of. And that experience cured me of my addiction to, or my, it's an addiction a lot of people had, which is to host the Tonight Show. That man, that cured me of that. Uh, <laughs> I thought I'll just be myself and I will do my show on a desert island if I have to, uh, but it'll be me and it'll be done. It'll be what I want to do. And that has proven to me to be the course that brought me the most happiness. Well, yeah. And the, as we entered the last couple minutes here, I mean, the transition began with that very successful, funny titled 
the Legally Prohibited from Being Funny on Television tour, which yeah. solidified that there's this huge following of yours that will will go anywhere with you. And then you you go to TBS, and I wondered if you know the fact that it seems like you've you've enjoyed being able to play with the format more there than you ever would have been able to do at a traditional network. In 2018, you shook up the length and the and the format, and concurrently, I think basically is when having already done these very extensive, uh, serious jibber-jabber kind of conversations on YouTube, yep. you now do a version of that with the podcast, with the traveling to different countries. Yeah. Is, there, is there something about the freedom of, yes. uh, additional freedom, yeah, that, yes. that, you com- that comes with Canada? No, if I had, you know, if, if there's an alternate reality uh, where I continue hosting The Tonight Show, I don't see nearly as much joy or artistic freedom as what I get to do now. And I... For example, the travel shows have been one of the most joyous experiences of my life. Uh, we, we started out by going to Cuba when there was this brief moment of time when uh, President Obama started to thaw relations with uh, Cuba. It eventually, when, when Trump came in, went the other way. But we, we went in there and did a late night show. I think we were, that was the first late night host to broadcast from Cuba. I didn't think Jack Parr had done a visit there and shot stuff, but we, we, that was exciting. And just the comedy was so, people loved to see me. I'd always loved remotes and felt like that was my strong suit. And I love, people always love to see me as the odd, the fish out of water, the person who's in over his head, doesn't belong. And so we've done so many travel shows that have meant so much to me. We went to Ghana not long before the COVID crisis, we went to, to Ghana and it was just miraculous. It was just, I mean, I, I had so many great moments there and I brought Sam Richardson with me and had so many great conversations about race and about what it means to go back to Africa and also really good fun com. I mean, I think that was the other thing too, that wasn't all heavy. It was, there was also, I had my coffin made there because they make coffins there that are, <laughs> that are shaped like whatever you want. And so I had a really cool coffin that looks like me wearing a, uh, wearing a leather jacket and a tie. And I got inside it and I had them put a TV in it so I could watch myself for all eternity. And uh, I just laughing my ass off. And so that's a, that's a show that I'm extremely proud of. And that I think was, I really like making connections with comedy. I know that sounds a little pompous, but I love to make friends through comedy and I love, and this, and the podcast has been the same thing. There's so many people that I know, but I've never, the best conversations I've ever had with them have been on the podcast. So I've, I've known Ben Stiller for 20s of 30 years, met him on Saturday Night Live. But the best conversation I've ever had with him in my life uh, was on the podcast. And it was just lovely and funny and just very meaningful to me. And when it was over, I just thought, I, if that didn't even air, that was worth everything to me. So Well, meaning, meaningful was the word I was going to ask you about because it seems like there's nothing. I mean, late night is wonderful, as you know from growing up with it and doing it and everything. But there, you, I think you also probably know as well as anybody, uh, any you know, like these other folks who have done it. There's a sort of ethereal nature to this. People don't go back and watch old Ed Sullivan episodes mm-hmm. or or mm-hmm. things like that. And so there seems like maybe the part of the appeal I would think of these other forms that you've added to the mix are that there is more lasting meaning to those to those things. Yeah, I, I do think there's something, we call it evergreen at the show, which is I've always loved evergreen comedy. So obviously it's very 
in vogue now and, and popular to say, uh, to do Trump jokes. And I understand it, and I have very strong feelings about the guy myself, but my favorite thing to do is comedy that will still look funny, that is comedy that just makes you belly laugh, that's very silly visually, or somewhat about what you could pompously call the human condition. But some of the things that happened to me in Cuba, or some of the things that have happened to me in Ghana, or Haiti, some of the experiences I've had where I've been, I think I've been funny in a way that if you look at it in 30 years, it still might make you laugh. And you don't need Absolutely. to know the context. I, I right. look like I shouldn't be there. I'm awkward. They're laughing at me. And I love it when people that don't even speak English are laughing at me. That gives me a lot of joy. So I think that's going to be much more interesting to me than a joke about Mike Pence and then 30 years from now, people are looking at it going like, what's a Mike Pence? And you go like, okay, all right. But man, when Conan fell down in front of everybody, he looked, man, that was, he looked like a fool. And I think that's, uh, that's the kind of stuff that, that gives me a lot of joy. Absolutely. Well, for the last 30 seconds, can we just do a, we always close with rapid fire, just first thing that comes here or, you know, one or two sentences. Where, where did the hairstyle come from? I swear to God, I grew up watching shows like uh, Hawaii Five O. I loved Elvis, and uh, I just Hawaii Five O. Though I looked at that yeah. McGarrett's hair, and I was like, "Man, I, that's the coolest hair in the world!" And so, and I knew my hair could do that, so I started doing that at a young age. Who's the best late night host ever? Well, I'm gonna go with. <laughs> that's it. Uh, I guess you'd have to say Carson. You know, you probably would have to say Carson because he, he was he meant everything to everybody somehow. And 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 it was a time when, I know it's a cliche, but he really was. I had the opportunity to talk to him a few times, and I I I, I did a short segment on him, and I called him the gold standard on the segment. And so he called to say that he liked the special that we had done about late night. And he liked the segment that we had done about him. And he said, my only exception, and it was that amazing iconic voice is that you called me the gold standard. And I said, well, Johnny, <laughs> just keep in mind, gold has dropped a lot in value recently. <laughs> <laughs> and I got off the phone afterwards and thought like, shit, I can't believe I said that. Uh, but, uh, but he really was to me, it all depends maybe somewhat on also on when you're born, but we always yeah. idolize the people that were on TV when we were kids. So that's Absolutely. the guy. Do you watch the other late night shows that you now are up against? Not really. I, it's funny because you say up against, I, I don't even think about it that way anymore because so much of it now is on the internet, meaning yes, I'm on TBS at 11, but everyone experiences these things in so many different ways now that I have no idea. I have to say this in, in all honesty, competition, meaning let's go up against each other. I think that works in sports. I think it works in certain ways. And then I think there are areas of endeavor where it doesn't necessarily work. I think sometimes in comedy, when people get into a quote competition with each other, they, they stray from their instincts, you know? It doesn't, I don't know that it brings out the best. I don't think the big quote competition between David Letterman and Jay Leno made either one of them better. Do you know what I mean? I, I, I think it was more of a media concoction and the media likes a horse race. So right. I don't, 
I don't think of it that way. I think there's such a wide variety now. You look at like, you know, what John Oliver can do with half an hour, is it half an hour a week, I think, is just, that's such a different medium than someone who's doing an hour a night versus someone who's doing a half hour versus someone who's doing uh, a couple of shows a year. And so you look at the whole spectrum and you wonder, I don't see how any of these shows sometimes are even in the same category. You know, that right. it's, it, it feels like, well, the potato has won <laughs> over the pound cake. You're like, what? <laughs> Why is a potato up against a pound cake? Last, last three here for you. Of the other late night hosts, who are you closest with? I, I have heard you say some very nice things about uh, a number of them. I would probably say the one I have talked to the most or hung out with the most would be Stephen Colbert, just because mm -hmm. I, I think we are both, uh, we're both tortured, uh, religious types as children. <laughs> and, uh, so he can, and, and we've, I, I think I've hung out with him more and, and talked with him more than I have maybe with the others. I don't know that I know the others as well. I know some of them kind of well, but I don't know, uh, and, and plenty of them, you know, I have to say is that we're in this era of a lot of them just seem very nice. I think there used yeah. to be an era in show business where people were all pricks. Uh, so I find that very boring. I think it's up to me to be the incredible prick now. So, <laughs> Speaking of which, if you wound up in an elevator one day with Jay Leno, what would you say to him? Oh, uh, I think I'd say I, I'm, this is my floor. Uh, <laughs> no, I'd be very excited. I'd say, hey, that's the LifeLock spokesman. Uh, <laughs> Uh, okay. Lastly, what keeps you doing this? I know it's not money. I know it's not fame. What, what is it that, you know, it's a, it's not an easy job. It's a heavy workload every week. Yeah. I, you know, it's so funny, but to me, I can keep doing it as long as it keeps changing and it's interesting to me. So I am having as much fun and probably in some ways more fun now than I've had before. And as long as that's true, I'll keep doing it. And I like any process where there's evolution involved. I really believe in that. And I, I, I love not knowing where this is going to go. Meaning a couple of years from now, what will my show look like? Or what will any late night show look like? I'm kind of excited to, to keep changing, growing and seeing what I can come up with. I like to make stuff. And I have to say the podcast, we just you know, finished our second season. If you had told me a couple of years ago, hey, Conan, you're going to have a podcast, I'd say, why? Why would I do a podcast? There's a part of me that comes through on the podcast that my friends know and my writers know that no one else has heard before because it's a slightly different mechanism. It's a different lens. And I love it. It's just absolutely something I adore. It's a lot of work. And I have to do that on top of the TBS show and on top of that, the travel shows. But it's really so miraculous to me that I started in this business when I was 22. I got my sh first show when I was 30. And now I'm just turned 57. And I am keep finding out new and exciting things and having fun and laughing. And things still feel new to me. And I know we just... I don't know when this airs, but we just lost Carl Reiner. And yeah. I know that there's a guy, I want to follow his example. I think he was 98. 
Mm-hmm. He never stopped trying things. He never stopped having fun. He never stopped laughing. He was someone who was coming up with funny things to do with his cell phone. He thought of a funny <laughs> bit on the cell phone called a selfishy, which is, you know, you take a picture where it's, you think it's, a, it's of someone else, but it's more you than them. Uh, and it was a really funny thing. And he did it with me in the dressing room. And then, I mean, here's a guy coming up with jokes for the iPhone. And at the time he was like 96. And, you know, he had done your show of shows with Sid Caesar. He had done everything. He had a Dick Van Dyke show. He had directed The Jerk, directed, you know, Man with Two Brains. I mean, just like this miraculous career, uh, uh, unprecedented. And I think if you had put him on a desert island and given him uh, a palm frond, he'd have thought of something funny to do with it that <laughs> cracked him up. That's the idea. That's what mm-hmm. I. That's what I love. That's my inspiration. Is keep playing and 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 stay young at heart and try to be you know try to let the silly flow. Well, thank you so much for all the laughs. Thank you for doing this, and uh, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man. <laughs> no, uh, I was I was really happy to do it, and uh, it's funny because when you talk, <laughs> lead me through my life like that, it's <laughs> it's like an experience for me. It's like I'm gonna now think about. Man, right, forgot. I forgot all the <laughs> shit that I went through. It's well, been crazy. Well, you do a great job on your podcast. I've loved listening to to so many of them. And uh, it is, it's a, I find it to be the most enriching thing I do. I, I learn so much. I enjoy it. Yeah, and yeah. For you to do it on top of your show, I don't know how you do that, but I, uh, I love that you do. It's called Incredible Neediness. <laughs> well, thanks again and uh, yeah. stay safe out there. I really appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.